Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Today is Tuesday, November 5th, Election Day. Hopefully, everyone out there, by the time you are hearing this uh, podcast, you voted in your respective uh, locations. Voter early and often. That's right. <laughs> so let's talk about our show today. We've got three of our guests, and their stories will be, we've got Greg Clark, head of municipal research, on his always scintillating Ion Munis. Welcome, Greg. Thank you, Young. Then we've got Ava Lorenz, our reporter in San Juan. How are you doing, Ava? Fine, how are you? Good. And you had a very interesting story about something that some people might find obviously not in the norm. It's um, based on cockfighting, but however, in Puerto Rico, it's part of the culture, and you'll explain that in a little bit when we get to you. And finally, we've got Maria Monte in New York. How are you, Maria? I'm well, Young. How are you? Good, thanks. And we'll talk about your story on tobacco bonds and the master settlement agreement. And let's we'll wrap up the whole um, backstory with that. Awesome. Okay. So let's get to it. Let's get started with Greg Clark and his eye on munis. So Greg, ta- tell us about your roughly quarterly report that you do. Eye on munis is something we have discussed before for our listeners who've been listening for a while. Uh, it's a quarterly report, as you mentioned, Young, that follows roughly 25 borrowers in the municipal market. And what these 25 borrowers have in common is that they are to one extent or another troubled. Uh, some are bankruptcy candidates, most are not. Uh, some will might file if, if things didn't go well. To give you an idea of the, of the variety that we have here, we've got school districts, cities, states, which of course cannot file for bankruptcy, but I'll talk about that later. Uh, museums, hospitals, project finance, mass transit, public electric utilities, and U.S. territories. And it's organized, uh, the way we have the, the whole list organized is uh, by basically by bankruptcy uh, eligibility. We've got borrowers eligible for Chapter 9 bankruptcy with or without state approval, so they could file on their own if they wanted to. Borrowers whose ability to file Chapter 9 is currently unknown. We've checked documents. It's not always mentioned in bond documents. Sometimes, uh, actually I would say always, we, we try to call a lawyer who's worked on the deal and we've had varying levels of success in getting answers from those lawyers. Uh, borrowers who are ineligible under state law to file Chapter 9. Borrowers that are ineligible to file Chapter 9, period, those would be the states and borrowers that are eligible for Chapter 11. Those would be nonprofit entities, for instance, museums and hospitals, which are, excuse me, nonprofit, but they're corporations, they're not municipalities, and they would file Chapter 11 if they needed to file. So in looking at your part, I understand that maybe uh, not maybe. In the most recent edition, you added some borrowers to your list? Yeah, we dropped some borrowers. I won't mention them because uh, they're not as newsworthy. The ones that we added were Provident Oklahoma Education Resources. In that case, bond proceeds were used to build a project, a mixed-use project on the campus of the University of Oklahoma in Norman. It included student housing, retail, dining, fitness, 
The project is not succeeding, and as of August of this year, project housing occupancy was only 35%. So in addition to the strain that they've got because of that, because housing is well below, it was probably projected to be in the low 90s as I recall, uh, the university is canceling leases that it had held there. So that's uh, not a good situation. And there are partial draws on debt service reserves to make interest payments on August 1st of this year. And if I may interject on yes. that one, we discussed that uh, deal on the podcast a few weeks ago, if you go back into the archives. Right. And uh, that's where we get a lot of the ideas for IM Unis is from our reporters. So thank you for that one, Maria, because I know you would worked a lot on that one. Uh, another one is National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund. They were the borrower, and they used bond proceeds to build a museum in D.C., not far from the National Mall. So they're competing with, this, with the Smithsonian facilities, which are free uh, to attendees, but to go to the National Law Enforcement Museum, you got to pay about, I think it's $18 per person right now. Uh, we, as I recall, we talked about this one a couple, three weeks ago as well. Right. Um, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority of New York, we've done uh, a couple pieces on them. They are not someone you would normally think of as a troubled borrower. They're certainly a troubled enterprise in the sense that they have um, a lot of programmatic problems. Anybody who rides this system, especially the subways, can tell you that they wouldn't rate it a 10 out of 10. But uh, as a borrower, they've got a, a need for large sources of capital. They've got uh, an inability to control project costs. One of their projects, called the Eastside Access Terminal, is about two and a half times over budget. And we're talking, it started out at about I don't know, maybe $5 billion. Uh, so when you're talking about two and a half times over, you're getting into some serious money. And uh, they want to issue congestion pricing bonds. Uh, we're not convinced of the, that that's going to work out as everyone plans. Uh, the last one we, we added is the Virgin Islands Water and Power Authority. We've had the Virgin Islands itself on IAM Unis for quite a while. But the Water and Power Authority uh, also has large cost overruns on its capital projects, is frequently unavailable to pr provide power, and sometimes provides water that may not be suitable to drink. So that's those are the last ones, the four that we added for the edition that just came out uh, on October 28th. Now, Greg, you said earlier that states can't file for bankruptcy, as you mentioned. And what, so why would you have states on there? Well. You could see price declines for a given state's bonds uh, if they have severe financial problems. And this has not happened yet, and we're not predicting that it's going to happen, but you could, also, you could always have a default even though you don't have a bankruptcy. All right, Greg. Well, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of the ideas come from our reporter stories and vice versa, so I think it's a good complement to the stories that we already have on our site. And to our subscribers, you could always check out Greg's research pieces. They're available on PDF format and Excel as well. So thank you, Greg. Thank you. Okay, Ava, we'll move on down to you. So let's talk about your story. And it, in a way, it's not a typical story on DebtWire, but it's something that's very culturally important in Puerto Rico. It's about cockfighting. Tell us what happened about how the federal government banned cockfighting on the Commonwealth. 
Yes, uh, the federal government um, last December banned uh, cut fighting in the in the entire United States, including the territory. It was it is already it was already legal in the in the United States. All they did was extend it to the territories. Now in Puerto Rico, it is not so much a cultural thing as it is an economic uh, issue because cut fighting represents about it's a twenty million dollar industry or more, and it provides about 20,000 direct or indirect jobs. Organizations that are involved in the cockfighting industry, they went to court to try to have the congressional ban on cockfighting uh, declared unconstitutional. This ban is slated to go into effect on December 21st. However, Judge uh, Helpe, uh, he declared that or ruled that the ban was uh, constitutional. And he pretty much said that the territorial clause allows Congress to uh, have this type of ban imposed or to have laws uh, uh, approved for the territory. Uh, the cockfighters argue that cockfighting uh, did not interfere with, with interstate commerce because it is a local industry, but the judge didn't buy that. And so the industry was declared, the ban was upheld. So what the cockfighters are now doing is they are planning to appeal this decision. So, right, you're, you're talking about the 2018 Farm Bill that basically banned cockfighting in all U.S. territories. So yes. since um, the cockfighting sector lost in court, what's their future plans? Well, uh, like I said, they are planning to uh, appeal this decision. Many cockfighters are saying that they will take their industry underground. In other words, that they, they will continue the industry, but uh, in an illegal fashion. And, um, and of course, everyone is trying to see what is going to happen with this appeal. However, uh, the government uh, is not, has not done any much about this. It, the government right now is trying to focus on developing other types of industries on the island that can help uh, bring revenues to, to the government and is pretty much trying to leave, uh, except for the resident commissioner, uh, the government is pretty much, it appears is pretty much trying to leave this industry behind. Jennifer Gonzalez, the Washington resident commissioner, says she has sent letters and she has uh, she is trying to convince other lawmakers in Congress to uh, revoke this ban. That does not appear to have any future. So the government is continuing to issue licenses uh, for cockfighting, uh, even though the ban is slated to go into effect uh, next month. Right. That's, like you said, December 21st. So one yes. last question for you. How has the federal government reacted to what the industry has said? Well, the federal prosecutor has not said anything yet. However, when this uh, ban went into effect and some cockfighters said that they would continue the industry even if it's declared illegal, uh, the federal government said that they were, were going to enforce the law and that they would uh, obviously arrest any individuals who um, uh, continue the industry or who do illegal cockfighting. So obviously this is going to create a lot of controversy now with the federal government. 
it is an issue of uh, state rights versus what the federal government can do. However, uh, like I said, uh, the, already the territorial clause, and this is something that has been upheld by the Supreme Court, says that Congress can approve whatever laws it deems necessary for the operations of the territories. Sounds very interesting. Uh, like you said, on December 21st or afterwards, you mentioned that things yes. are going to go underground, like sort of like rum. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Okay. Well, yes. thank you, Ava, for your uh, story there. You're welcome. Thank uh, you. All right. Let's finish it off with Mariamonte back in New York. Let's talk about your story, which focuses on tobacco bonds. And for our listeners out there, let's go back in time and explain what are tobacco bonds. In the broadest of terms, in November 98, an agreement was reached between the Attorney General of most U.S. states and several territories settling lawsuits against tobacco companies, and it's called the Master Settlement Agreement, or MSA. In a nutshell, for our purposes, the tobacco companies agreed to make annual payments in perpetuity to the settling parties, the payments based on the number of cigarettes sold and shipped in the United States. And the settling parties, mostly U.S. states, some counties, began to securitize those payments by issuing tobacco bonds at where investors purchased the debt and debt services backed by the MSA payments. They're received favorably in the market because they tend to offer high yield and they're very liquid, which is rare in the municipal market. Uh, securities don't often trade. Um, many holders are holders and um, purchase to hold the debt. Some buyers have it in their portfolio for just that reason. So high yield and very liquid. Exactly. Dynamic dual. Exactly. Murray, isn't tobacco consumption overall like declining? Yep, and it has been for years, even before the MSA. The payments are based on sticks sold, that's what they call individual cigarettes, and so as consumption declines, so do MSA payments to governments. And the issue with tobacco bonds, the reason why they offer so much yield to investors is in part because of the duration risk. Because MSA payments are declining, that means there's less revenue available for debt service in the future. So I just thought of a question just now about how cigarettes, traditional cigarettes tie in with electronic cigarettes or e-cigarettes. What's the tie-in there, and do you think there's any connection with this master settlement agreement? E-cigarettes have contributed to the decline in uh, overall cigarettes sold, but the controversy surrounding vaping right now, there are um, some people in the market and analysts generally who believe that that might uh, drive people back to traditional cigarettes, given the uh, unknowns. Are any tobacco bonds defaulting? Not yet. There haven't been any payment-related defaults, to my knowledge, but that's a yet. The structure of these securities are complicated. There's a waterfall, and some have final redemptions out 20 or 30 years. Some believe there could be payment-related defaults in the future. Many of them have turbo provisions, which means there's if there's more available money for debt service, it should be used and to retire the securities early. But if there isn't enough money for debt service, maturities are extended until there is enough money to uh, finance the payments. In the last three years, we've seen a lot of tobacco refinancing to address the maturities of this debt, but they're still dealing with the same fundamental problem, which is that there's less cash flow to support debt service of these bonds. All right, very interesting. Well, thank you, Maria, for your um, continued coverage. Thank you to Greg Clark, thank you to Ava Lorenz, and thank you to our producer, Anthony Phillips. But most of all, thank you to our listeners for tuning in week after week. We'll see you again next time on the Muni Lowdown. Take care, everybody.
Thanks for listening to the Muni Lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.